The big theme of Psalm 119 is your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We're talking about navigating life by the authority of the word of God. We are going to tackle tonight verses 89 through 112. So it's a pretty big section. It's three Hebrew letters. Let me just remind you, if you're new to this study, that you'll see at the top of each section of eight verses a letter. And it might look foreign to you, but it's actually Hebrew letters. And tonight we're going to start with the letter Lamed. And that's how you would pronounce it. And it's right over verse 89 in Psalm 119. The Hebrew letter Lamed. And let's put that up on the screen for a second. And what I've been trying to uh, do as we go through these studies is show you kind of the way that Moses would have written the early Lamed, which is pretty much like our L, and then how it developed through time. It went through like a middle Hebrew time, late, and then all the way on the right, my right, um, modern Hebrew. And uh, it's, this is the 12th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters. And the one that I would want you to look at for right now, at least the first two is, but the one that's under middle Hebrew, uh, what does that look like to you? It looks like a staff, doesn't it? And that's what it really represents. It represents a shepherd's staff. So each time there's a letter over the eight verses that follow, each of the verses start with that letter. And so it is written in an acrostic kind of fashion. So you have the Lamed and then every following verse has that word in there. And usually it starts with that word. And you can even track that in our English. So we have the 12th stanza of Psalm 119 with the letter Lamed. The letter Lamed, that's how you would pronounce it, means the staff or the rod or the cattle goad. These eight verses tell us that God's authority controls and protects us like a shepherd's staff. The pictograph of a rod symbolizes control to prod or urge us forward, or to go toward or to go forward. Now, we know that there are many people in our Bibles that were shepherds. We think, for example, of Moses, who was a shepherd, and he shepherded out in Midian. We can think of David, who was the little shepherd boy. He was out tending the sheep when he was called in to be anointed as the future king of Israel. Even... uh, Was it Rachel who was called a shepherdess in Genesis 29, 29? And of course, the most famous shepherd of all is the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the good shepherd. And so as we lead into these verses, I would want you just to keep that in mind and to think about how the word of God is a shepherd in your life. Now, the word of God is an extension of God himself. So God desires to shepherd you. And in fact, one of the words used for a church leader is the Greek word poimen, P-O-I-M, I think it's E-N or A-N. And it literally means a feeder or a shepherd. And a shepherd's job was to lead the sheep, to lead them to green pastures and still waters, to provide for them, to protect them from wolves in sheep's clothing or hirelings who didn't really care about the sheep But Jesus said, that's not who I am. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so this leads us into a beautiful image because Jesus is the living word. And let me just remind you of a familiar passage. Jesus said these words. He said, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27 through 30. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the word of God, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're going to come in direct contact with those verses tonight, very well-known verses. We want to understand what they mean to us tonight. 
as we navigate life, as we walk by the power and authority of the word of God. We know your word is alive. We know it's a light. We know it's water. We know it's uh, going to give us the endurance and power we need. So just release it tonight to us, Lord, and uh, just bless your people because they are here. And anyone who will watch this, Lord, may it be an encouragement to their souls. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen? Amen. Just a side note, each Hebrew letter has a number equivalent. And just a side note that the number equivalent to the Lamed is 30. And a good way to remember Lamed is that Jesus started his earthly ministry at about the age of 30. So there's just some interesting connections here. And we start off with this section with the Lamed with these words. Forever, Psalm 119.89, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. Now the psalmist we have seen in Psalm 119 has himself been unsettled. He's been going through some unknown affliction to us. He's got enemies, he's got problems, and he's been crying out to God. And he has found his answers in the light of the word of God. He keeps returning to the word of God to find personal revival and hope and endurance And that's what the word of God does for me and does for you. Every time I go back to the word of God, it provides endurance and hope, living water, strength, what I need for the moment, what I need for the day. It is my daily bread. And the psalmist says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled. Hebrew word for settled is natsab, and it means it stands or it stands up in heaven. It is settled forever. Now, everything on this planet seems unsettled, especially at the moment, amen? And sometimes our lives seem unsettled, and the psalmist definitely feels unsettled. Life is not settled for him. But God's word, he can say, even though I am unsettled down here on the earth, God's word is settled in heaven. It's not open to debate. It's not open to public opinion polls. It's not up to a politician. It's not up to academia or even whatever you want to say, seminaries and the like. God's word does not change because God does not change. He has settled it. And anybody who tries to mess with his word is going to ultimately be the victim of a greater powerful God. Amen? You don't mess with God. You don't mess with his word. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. It is settled in heaven. And he says, when you pray, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So one of my prayers could be, Lord, settle me to know that even though the world is unpredictable and I'm often unsettled, you've settled it in heaven. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full. It's settled. It's done. It's over. If you're a child of God, you are a child of God. It is settled in heaven. Praise the Lord. Spurgeon says, after tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps to shore and stands upon a rock. Jehovah's word is not fickle nor uncertain. It is settled, determined, fixed, sure, immovable. Man's teachings change so often that there's never time for them to be settled. But the Lord's word is from old, the same, and will remain unchanged eternally, close quote. We watch the talking heads today flip-flop back and forth, up and down. You never know what to believe because the next moment they say something different. Who are we to believe? What are we to stake our lives on? How are we to navigate this journey? God's word is settled, In heaven, you don't have to be shaken. God knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't alternate his plan. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words shall not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. That leads us into thy faithfulness. His word settled and his faithfulness continues or endures throughout how many? All generations. Thou did establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day, and I think that they could point to the testimonies or the law of God, but also to the people. They stand this day according to thine ordinances, for all things are thy servants. Now, God's faithfulness, his word is settled, and his faithfulness 
reaches out to all generations. One author says there is a constancy and order in all creation reflecting the faithfulness of the Lord. We wake up by God's grace and the sun rises and the sun sets. We see patterns of rain and animal life and uh, life that there's so many things uh, that we can easily take for granted. Right now we're airing the book of Job on Walk in Truth Radio. And there's a section where Elihu is giving the final speech before God speaks. And Elihu says essentially this, that God at any moment could call all breath back to himself. He's the giver of breath. And if he wanted to, in a given moment, he could call all breath back to him. Can you imagine having that power? That's why you want God to be consistent. That's why you want things settled in heaven. You don't want God to have a good, uh, a bad day and say, all breath, return to me now. People will be dropping like flies everywhere. That's an amazing power. But the opposite is true of that. God gives breath, right? He breathes out his word. He breathes out life to us. He sustains us. That's what the psalmist is singing about and celebrating. A striking feature of these verses, says Kidner, is the coupling of God's creative, world-sustaining word with his law for man. Both are the product of the same ordering mind, God, and not only men, but all things are his servants. And so he is faithful to every generation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. We worry about future generations. I think every older generation worries about future generations. Amen? We're like, I don't know what's going to happen to them. <laughs> right? Generation, whatever the letter is that's put on that generation. You used to be that generation if you're a little older. People were gravely concerned about you. Right? You're just your basic survival. <laughs> the music you listen to, the movies that you watch, the people you hung around with. Oh, it's true. It was you. But as we get older, we have the same concerns. And look, I know we have some unprecedented things going on, so I'm not downplaying what's, what's happening. But God will be faithful to every believing generation. Amen? Amen? He'll be faithful to our kids, our grandkids, and however many generations until the Lord returns. It stands because God stands and they will stand. The world that God made will stand as long as he wants it to stand. The generations behind us will stand as long as he ordains them to stand. Let us be confident then. Whenever God means to break his word and change his ordinances, we may expect to find the, this earth go streaming into the sun, says Spurgeon, or else it would, will rush far off into space. Nobody knows where. But while God keep, while it keeps its place, what have you to worry about? It's not the sign that the Lord, is that not the sign that the Lord will keep us also? Close quote. Spurgeon is essentially saying, if God wants it to remain constant, it will. And until he wants to roll up the curtain and create new heavens and new earth, you got nothing to worry about. And when he creates new heavens and new earth, if you're a believer, you're gonna inherit those too. And you'll be walking on the streets of Jerusalem, the one that comes down from God. Amen? So why worry? You don't have to fret. God is on the throne, and yet we worry, <laughs> right? We struggle with it. And he says, if thy law had not been my delight, verse 92, and we go back to Psalm 1, uh, the, the person who's blessed delights in the law of the Lord day and night, right? He says, if I had not delighted in the Torah, then I would have perished in my affliction. I would have been overwhelmed had I not had the word of God to be my light, to be my lamp. What got him through his afflictions was a lifelong habit of reading, this is James Montgomery Boyce, learning, meditating upon, spiritually digesting, and above all, obeying God's law, close quote. What got the psalmist through was the word of God. And that's why the word of God is so important in our lives. And I know that's why you're here on a Wednesday night when you have a bunch of other options because you know what God's word does for you. It has a sustaining power. It illuminates the path. It 
helps us stand afresh on the promises. And so he says, I will never forget your precepts, 93, for by them you have revived me, amen? I'll never forget. How could I forget? How could I forget what he has put into my soul? What would I do? I had a dear, sweet sister in the Lord who asked me a question, and she's doing a Bible study on a particular topic, and she said, Pastor Michael, was there ever a time when someone said something discouraging to you about you being in the ministry? And I thought for a moment, and I thought of a time, I was a young man, I had become a Christian, I was in my 20s, and I was thinking about the pastorate, and for a while I had thought about multiple careers, I want to be a baseball player, you know, maybe I would be this, maybe I'd be that, and I felt pretty close after my conversion, a tug into the ministry. And I went to a buddy, uh, buddy's house that I had gone to high school with and we did a lot of bad things together. And I said something to his dad about my desire to be a pastor. And he shared these words with me. He said, oh no, not that, anything but that. Do anything. It's bad enough that you're a Christian. But please don't become a Christian pastor. Anything but that. Wow. Now, as much as I could tell you that that just flowed off my back and it didn't bother me, I still remember those words. I still remember the discouragement and even a slight bit of humiliation that I felt from an older man saying that. But how could I forget? What else could I do with this truth and this calling. I am yours, 94. I am thine. Save me. I belong to you, Lord. That's what I do know. And I have sought your precepts. I am yours. You know, once you belong to God, this could be a simple prayer. You can say about a lot of things, save me. <laughs> now, we know that save me is, sounds like a salvation prayer, right? And hopefully all of us have done that. At some point, we're to call upon the name of the Lord. We're to ask him to save us. Call upon the, the name of the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. So we need to do that. But the psalmist already knows God. But he's saying, deliver me. Deliver me from what? what? From my trouble, from my doubts, from my dryness, from my enemies, whatever it may be. So a very simple prayer. I belong to you. Save me. I'm your child. In the New Testament, we're called the bride of Christ. I'm seeking your ways, Lord, save me. The wicked wait for me. There's enemies out there. They want to destroy me. We have the devil that prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy or devour. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Lord, every time I think about an enemy, I'm gonna think more about you. Every time I realize that there might be an enemy on the prowl, sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the idea of spiritual warfare, for example. And uh, we start thinking, man, I've got an enemy and he's on the prowl. And people keep telling me, I'm praying for you, pastor, because we know how the enemy has a target on leaders' backs. And all God's people said, go. <laughs> Say what? Right? And you start thinking about it and you can be overwhelmed with that. But I consider God's testimonies. I diligently consider the wicked wait for me. They want to destroy me, but I'll diligently consider what God says about me. I belong to him. I am his. Nothing will ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I have seen a limit to all perfection, 96. Thy commandments Thy commandment is exceedingly broad. Let me read a couple of the translations to help us. To all perfection I see a limit, says the psalmist, but your commands are boundless. NLT, New Living. Even perfection has limits, but your commands have no limit. Kidner says this verse could well be a summary of Ecclesiastes, where every earthly enterprise has its day and comes to nothing. And we're only in God and his commands do we get beyond these frustrating limits. There's no doubt that I can look at things at times, a beautiful bird in flight, uh, a beautiful uh, area of, let's say, pretty flowers. I could look at the ocean. You can look at a strong, 
uh, athlete. And it's hard to imagine that that person would ever, you know, maybe get old or fail or maybe lose their health. But to everything that looks perfect, everything has limitations, right? And uh, as you get older, you will learn your limitations. Can I get a witness? Anybody out there? So it used to be that if there was like a three-foot wall, I would just jump off of it and I wouldn't think twice about it. Now, depending on how my knees feel that day, I ponder diligently whether or not this is a good career move. Some of you will understand this later. But look, everything has its limitations and it doesn't matter how young or powerful you think you are. Companies that look so impressive, right? We've seen how quickly things can change. But the Lord's commandment is boundless. Your commands have no limit. Sometimes when people talk about God's word, they say stuff like this. Isn't that narrow? Isn't that like really, really Jesus being the only way? That sounds very narrow. Actually, God's commands and his law are boundless. It opens up much more than it narrows. Can I get a witness? See, this is what I think a lot of people don't understand. The depths and the beauty of what God opens up to your mind and heart far outweigh the boundaries that he puts around your life. And the boundaries that he puts around your life are for your own good. So he puts loving boundaries, but then he allows you to expand your borders beyond what you've ever known before. And I will tell this uh, to you guys, because I've said this to young men who are growing up in the ministry, and not to all of them, but I'll say it now. In the ministry, you will know heights that few men know. And you will know depths that few men know. Because the closer that you get to God, I think the more you get in touch with his heart. His heart for his world, his heart for the lost, his heart for his people. When you see brokenness and disunity and hurt and division and where the enemy has gotten a foothold... It's heartbreaking. It's hard for any of us who have the love of God in our hearts. And we've been praying, Lord, you know, expand my heart, right? And whenever you say, Lord, expand my heart, now you risk more of it being stepped on. But you get a little bit more of a taste of what God sees and how he opens up his arms all day long. And thinking about a verse that could help us with this, this is what comes to mind Psalm 138, verse 8 says, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Don't forsake the work of your hands. The Lord will take care of what concerns me today. That's the Lamed. That's the shepherd's staff. The Lord guides us with his word. We move to the Mem. That's kind of the equivalent of our M. Let's just track it through time. Early Hebrew uh, on the left here to middle to later Hebrew, to modern Hebrew. The 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the Mem. It's at the top of these next eight verses. And the early Hebrew way that Moses would have written it, and even in Middle Hebrew, you can see the form of an M, but it's to depict waves of water. So the Mem is a sign of water. Now, whenever you think about water, what do you think of? Water is life-giving. God is like water to our souls. Jesus promised to give living water to the woman at the well. And when you put the two images back to back, you picture the good shepherd leading his little sheep to streams of living water. And there he leads me beside green pastures and still waters. This is where he wants to lead us. And so we have the mem here, uh, the ancient symbol for water which would then connect to the idea of growth and flourishing. So when you're walking with the Lord and you follow your good shepherd and he leads you to living water, your life begins to flourish and abound in growth. This is what the word of God does for us. And Psalm 119 is all about the word of God. And when you allow the word of God or the God of the word to lead you, 
He shepherds you, he protects you, he leads you to living water so that your life can begin to produce fruit. Psalm 1, again, has this image of the blessed person meditating on the word of God day and night. It's their delight. And they'll be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit in season, and whatever they do, they prosper in the best sense of the word. They are a fruit-bearing individual. Psalm 1 set the tone for this idea of mem, of the waves of water coming into our lives by the word of God. And it starts this way. Remember, the, the mem will be in uh, each of the sentences. Oh, how I love your Torah, thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, some of you could say, well, I understand the concept of mem and even the pictograph of mem, but how do I get the flourishing part? <laughs> well, here's how you got to do it. You got to make the Torah something that you love, God's word, the law, and make it your meditation, how often? All the day, or Psalm 1 says day and night. Now, how do you do that? Are we expected to read our Bibles 16 hours a day? I sure hope not, because I'm not doing that. And I will tell you this, I spend much of my week in study for two typical messages that I do in a given week. I'm before my Bible in commentaries a good 30, 40 hours a week. And even with that, I feel like I don't have enough of God's word in my life, right? But I have learned, and I hope that this is you as well, to love God's word. There's a love, there's a passion for it. And when you love somebody or something, you love it for what it is. You don't try to change it, you just love it, amen? There are people that are described in 2 Thessalonians 2 as perishing because they did not have the love of the truth. And you gotta love the truth to really know it. You need to let it permeate your path. How do you do that? Sometimes it's just meditating on one verse throughout your day. Uh, I take in a lot of different verses during a given week, but I have some friends of mine, and when we do prayer time and stuff, they'll throw out one verse, and that one verse could carry me for a long time. So for example, Psalm 119, verse 89, forever your word is settled in heaven, could carry me for a while. Amen? So it's not about necessarily you always reading the Bible 16 hours a day. You're not going to do that. It is about meditating on the Bible. Now, read it, read it as much as you can. Read it day and night. But if you're at work, obviously, you're not going to have your Bible right in front of you. So you let it permeate your soul. If there's a verse that, that God has given to you, so to speak, it's jumped off the page. It's something that you're trying to memorize or meditate on. Let it permeate your path during the week. Spurgeon put it this way, when you truly love someone, you don't wish to change them. You cannot bend the Bible to your mind. How much better it would be for you to bend your mind to the Bible and to say, oh, how I love thy law. The doctrines of it, the precepts of it, the promises of it, the ordinances of it enjoins upon me, the warnings it sets before me, the exhortations it gives me. Love the whole Bible from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and be prepared even to die rather than to give up a half a verse of it, says Spurgeon, close quote. Boy says it this way, the order of the divine mind embodied in the divine law is beautiful. It is the language of a man ravished by moral beauty. If we cannot at all share his experience, we shall be the losers that's actually quoting from C.S. Lewis as he reflected on the Psalms. He says, let's love it. Let's, let's have this idea of being ravished by the moral beauty of God's word. Let's meditate on it all the day. Your commandments, 98, make me wiser, wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. Just like God is mine, so his commandments are mine. You know, they say about your mind that you remember everything you've ever taken into your mind. Isn't that amazing? Recall is a different story. Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? Sometimes you read something like, what did I just read? And sometimes you meet somebody and their name goes out the window, right? But somewhere deep in the recesses of your soul, everything you've ever read, 
heard, studied about the word of God has gone into you. And you'll be amazed, and some of you can bear witness to this, there's times when you have been witnessing to somebody or sharing or teaching a Bible study and scriptures begin to flow and you're like, whoa, I didn't think I was that smart. And you're not. (laughs) Here's the thing. God knows you have a catalog of everything that you've learned that he can bring out at the right time. It's it's a supernatural thing. I, I experience it sometimes, oftentimes when I'm preaching. And I can't explain it to you, but verses just coalesce in my mind and things that I've studied and learned and extra things. And it's just a beautiful thing. And so you can be wiser than your enemy. And this psalmist had enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers. I wouldn't say that in front of your teachers, but uh, there it is. For your testimonies are my meditation. It is possible to surpass your teachers. Uh, We all need teachers. The Bible says there's a teaching gift, and certainly the teaching office is an important thing. But it is possible to learn a certain amount from a person and even go beyond what you learn from them. And that would be totally up to your diligence, However much you want to know about the Bible is up to you. Amen? If you want to be a diligent student of the Bible, then you need to make that your priority and you will surpass perhaps even your teachers. Maybe this could be, you know, we could think of school teachers. We could think of maybe uh, those who laid some early groundwork in our Christian journey. This principle has been proven in the lives of servants such as Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, William Carey, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Hudson Taylor, and many more. He says, I understand even more than the aged 100 because I have observed thy precepts. I'd be careful with that one too. Uh, Those of you who are younger, I'd be careful that you don't uh, disrespect your elders. But you might know more than an older person knows and just by virtue of their years doesn't make them wiser. Do you know some older people that are not very wise? I do. They've lived a long time, but they don't have God's wisdom. So their wisdom is limited. There's a limit to what they know. God's law is boundless. Therefore, you can go beyond even someone who may be older in age, but may not have the wisdom of Scripture. And of course, we want to be respectful to our elders, but this is the point. He's saying... Uh, Harry Ironside says, Boyce, the pastor, author, Bible commentator, Ironside went to visit a man near death suffering from tuberculosis. The man was almost dead and could barely speak. As Pastor Ironside spoke to him, he said, uh, he asked, young man, are you trying to preach Christ? You're trying to preach Christ, are you not? Ironside said to the man that he was, well, sit down a little. Let us talk about the word of God, said the man. Then the man opened his Bible and spoke with Ironside until his strength was gone. He shared insights from the Bible that Ironside had not appreciated or even seen before as a pastor. Ironside was stunned, and he asked the man, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where I can find a book that will open them up to me? Did you get them in seminary or college? The old man replied, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and open up the Word of God to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I have ever learned in all seminaries or colleges in all the world. Close quote. Now, certainly we're not downplaying the value of education, but what we are saying is that God can reveal himself as you have an open Bible and teach you wonderful things. I've not restrained my feet from every evil way, 101, that I may keep your word. I've not turned aside from your ordinances, for thou thyself has taught me. When you open up God's word, God's word teaches you, but God himself is essentially teaching you. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. So you sit before your Bible, and certainly someone with an unregenerate heart or a closed heart might not learn much or anything, but if your heart is open to the Lord 
it's as if the Lord himself is instructing us because he's the author, ultimate author of scripture. That's why the psalmist would say next, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, because I know them, I hate what? Every false way. God's word is sweet. That used to be surfer language back in the day. Is it still used? Like we'd go to the beach and if the waves were big, we'd go sweet, sweet. Have you ever left a Bible study and said, that's sweet. I hope you leave these Bible studies saying that. Pastor Michael, that was sweet. (laughs) Because God's word is sweet. It's good. Now, even when it corrects us, it can be a little hard to take, but in the end, we know it's for our good. And so, one final thought here before we move on to the next letter. Notably, the psalmist says, Boyce begins this section with love. He ends it with hate. I hate every false way. The Christian life is not all sweetness. It has its sweet moments, and there is uh, incomparable beauty in God, but we still live in a sour, ugly world, and it's equally important to learn to hate evil as well as love the good, to shun the evil way because we know what it will do to us, and we don't want to dishonor God. Okay, the final section is the noon. That's equivalent to our N. Let's put it up on the screen. You can see the early Hebrew, middle, late, and modern Hebrew. It is pronounced noon as if it were noon on the clock, but it's N-U-N. And there's a uh, character in our Bibles who was known as the son of Noon. There's a running joke that Joshua didn't have the father because he was the son of Nun, N-U-N. Um, but Noon is how you pronounce it. And Joshua was actually known as the son of Noon. You say, what, what does Noon mean? It's depicted, as you can see in the pictograph here, uh, it becomes a little clearer in Middle Hebrew as a fish darting through the water. And we take the three images together, we see in Jesus, the good shepherd, who leads us to living water and interacted with fishermen. In fact, he called two sets of brothers that left their nets to follow him. And those two sets of brothers were fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And there's a couple of wonderful scenes in the New Testament where Jesus, what does he do? He multiplies fish. Luke chapter 5, John 21 come to mind. The first occasion when he does it, Peter falls down before him and says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And you can see the fish with the noon darting through the water. The power of the word of God, the living word, if you will. In John 21, when Peter says, I'm going back fishing, Jesus again lets them have a great catch And they pull in 153 fish. And at some point, Peter is dragging the net along. And it's interesting. This is debated. I throw it out for your own interest. And you can do more homework on it. I will clarify it's debated. But some say taking the number 153 into the Hebrew equivalence, it means 153 means I am God. Interesting. You can just search that out yourself. But this is the noon. It speaks of life, action. So we need the light of God's word. We need the uh, power of the word, the water, the shepherd. But we need to take action as well. And the noon means action. And each of these verses start with the noon. Let's jump into it. And the famous uh, verse here before us in 105, your word is what? It's a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. The stanza emphasizes the clarity of Scripture to help you know how to navigate the paths of life. Do you know where you're going? You know, Jesus said, if a blind man leads a blind man, will they not both fall into a pit? 
We need the word of God. And Jesus described himself as the light of the world. And he said, while you have the light among you, follow the light. He who follows me will not abide in darkness. He, she will have the light of life. He's the light of the world. The light came into the world and shone and was demonstrated. And God's word is a lamp to my feet. You guys remember in Matthew 25, there's a story about the 10 virgins and they're waiting for the bridegroom and they all have lamps. They have these ancient, may have been torches or little oil lamps and half of them were wise and half of them were foolish. And so when the bridegroom came at midnight, the call went out, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming and they all woke up out of a slumber and only half of them had the oil. And you say, well, what does this mean? Why does it point to the lamp? I think maybe this consideration that the Holy Spirit, I think signified in the oil, illumines the word of God. And so when you're trying to navigate life, let's just say you're, you're in a certain situation, and I'm not talking about you turn to page 117 in your Bible, and it says, take job B. Because we all have those struggles, right? Should I take this job? Should I do this? Should I do that? You ain't gonna find that in your Bible. The only close thing you'll find is the book of Job. I mean, Job. So you're not gonna find that. What you are gonna find is principles for moral living and following God's greater commands. And God can take a moment where you're wrestling over a situation and illumine a Bible verse that directly applies to that example. My youngest was uh, trying to get into um, Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, the, you have the financial piece of it, right? And how much can mom and dad do? And how do you figure out the finances and all of this stuff, right? So he was, he was struggling with it. And um, we were talking and I said, you know what? His name is James. I said, James, I just really believe that the Lord's gonna take care of this. And he, said, he said, Dad, I, I don't know if you could call this a vision, but I, I had a picture in my mind the other night and I was worried and kind of praying about the provision for college. And, and I had this vision of a ram caught in the thicket. He goes, does that mean anything to you? And I said, oh, yes, it does. And I had just studied Genesis 22 and shared it with our elder board in a, on a previous occasion. And we were praying about something as a church and God's provision and leading. And God, I, I believe God gave me that verse. And here's the key part of it just for tonight. It says in that section, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And I said, James, I think the Lord has just spoken to you and told you that the Lord is going to provide for your college. Now, he wasn't even familiar at, in the moment with chapter and verse of like where that was in the Bible. But the Lord took a truth and applied it to James' situation for both of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He took the word of God and let a verse illumine that situation. Amen? Now, we're all, we're all careful Bible students in this room about context and we don't want to misapply the word of God. But I do think there are times when God can take a promise like that and specifically apply it to your situation. And so I'll leave that before you. Your words a lamp to my feet, helps me know where I'm going, a light to my path. Joshua, the son of Nun, said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24, 15. And Joshua took the baton from Moses, big sandals to fill, and led Israel by the light of God's word, if you will, into what? The promised land. The sun of noon, action, fish, power, shepherd, water, all intersecting. I'm gonna serve the Lord. I don't know what you guys are doing, but this is what I'm doing. I have sworn, leads us into 106. I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I think you gotta plant your flag just like Joshua did. If you wanna be a person who sees the action and the power of God, you've gotta, and I'm not saying to make an oath here because we gotta be careful with that. 
But we do make oaths when we take uh, persons through ordination services or do marriage vows. And here's what the psalmist says, man, I've sworn, I, I'm confirming it. I'm gonna keep your ways, Lord. I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. I've got issues and problems. I'm grieved, but be glorified. Breathe life into my situation. We're winding down just a few verses. He says, oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth. Oh, Lord, and teach me thine ordinances. See that word free will in your Bible? That's an interesting word, isn't it? It's getting a lot of debate. Is there such a thing as free will? Yep, there is. <laughs> you can decide how much you want to give to the kingdom of God. There's all this debate about the tithe. This is the tithe for today. The tithe was given to ancient Israel. Is it a good idea to tithe? Yes. 10% is a good place to start, but it's not a law that you're under. You're not under the law. You're not under the Malachi curse. That was for Israel. It ain't for you. But is 10% a good place to start? Yeah, I think so. But you're not under a curse if you don't give 10%. Please know that. I think you should give more. Personally, I'm just kidding. Anyway. It's a free will offering. You know what that means? God delights when you do something from your free will. Amen? I want to give this to you, Lord. Not, oh, here comes the offering bag. <laughs> Heard a pastor tell a story. Offering bag was coming by. He was a young Christian. He had $5 in his pocket, and he wanted to go to Coco's. So the offering bag came by, and he was like, oh, Coco's, I don't know. Pancake deal, $4.99. And he put the $5 in. And he said, later on, church was over, and he felt convicted and everything. And one of his buddies said, hey, let's go to Coco's. I'm buying. <laughs> Some people, get, they get those dinosaur arms when the... It's a free will offering. But wouldn't it be nice if we wanted to give God as much as we could? Amen. Do you think that God wants a gun to your head for you to say, I love you? Yes, I love you. I love you. I swear, I love you. Uh-uh. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you to come to church for some obligatory reason. Now, we do some things out of obedience, no doubt. Sometimes I gotta get to the building before my heart follows. Yes, it's true. Sometimes it, the first worship song, I, you know, pulls me through. But God wants, and now notice this is even about money. Free will offerings of what? My mouth. Oh, the Lord wants you to give free will offerings from your lips. The fruit of your lips giving what? Thanks to his name. So when you're in worship and you sing a song, you have made an offering. You get it? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And offerings are not just about what I pull out of my pocket. They're what come, comes out of my mouth. Whether I'm praising the Lord and giving glory to his name. Teach me. Oh, Lord, your ordinances. Man, I need to be taught. My life is, in continu is continually in my hand. ESV 109 says, I hold my life in my hand continually, yet I do not forget your law. Here's the idea. I think the new living gives us a good clue. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have laid a snare for me. There's no doubt enemies are out there. Maybe they're my enemies because I want to keep God's word. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I made a commitment. I am going to do your will. Perhaps the psalmist's life hangs in the balance. It does appear so. They've laid snares for me. Uh, verse 110, they've laid a snare for me, yet I'm not going to move from your precepts. Two times, you can uh, note this later for your own devotional reading. In 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is talking about the qualifications of church elders, he talks about the condemnation of the devil and the snare of the devil. And he says, if you 
put a new convert into church leadership too quickly, he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil by his pride. And if you become a church leader, you gotta watch for the snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, verses six and seven. Snares are laid. We can avoid them by obeying God's word. Final two verses. I have inherited your testimonies. They're my heritage forever. They're what I'm inheriting. I'm a co-heir of Christ. They are the joy of my heart. When I read God's word, when I see the action and the, the promises, man, they just encourage my heart. They're my heritage. I'm Christ's son, his bride. And finally, I've inclined my heart to perform. There's an action word going with the noon, the fish. I've inclined my heart. I've positioned myself to drink the living water, to follow the shepherd. The lamed, I'm gonna follow the shepherd. The mem, I'm gonna drink the living water. The noon, the fish, the action, I'm gonna perform his statutes forever, even to the end. When Jesus was uh, in the upper room on the night before the crucifixion, he washed the disciples' feet, and it says these words. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, he loved them to the end. Now we're gonna take communion right now, and you know this has been a while since we've done this on a Wednesday night, and we've had some beautiful moments, and Shane, I'm gonna ask if you're not, you know, I think you're headed up here right now. Uh, as we worship, the elements are down here. Now, we've made the provision with all we've gone through to keep them in the bags, but I still felt that, that it was important that you walk down and have a, a moment where you can grab the elements and you can go back to your uh, pew and then take it when you're ready. I'm not gonna lead us in the, the typical way we do it. We know that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, shed his blood for the new covenant. We're to remember him in taking the Lord's Supper we're to celebrate this until he comes. And so we remember. But before we do this, would you bow your heart? If you're not a Christian, then this would be something that you wouldn't want to do because you're not honoring it in the right way. But if you're not a Christian, why don't you become one right now? Jesus, pray it, save me. Save me. We saw that prayer in Psalm 119. Save me. You don't have to have a perfect prayer. Just ask him to save you. Lord, I repent of my sin. Thank you that you entered into the world as the good shepherd. Thank you that you died for your sheep. Thank you that you defeated death, rose from the dead. Thank you that you are my heritage, that I'm a co-heir with Christ and I'm gonna inherit the kingdom. As I take, as I walk forward to receive these elements, thank you. Revive me. Enlarge my heart. Help me follow the shepherd, drink of the water, have the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We're so grateful for your living word. Bless your people. Strengthen them, protect them. In Jesus' holy name.